0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Paul Tanzi. Paul is the Managing Director at Intergage, a provider of engineering marketing solutions. Paul, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Uh, Good morning, and thank you for the opportunity, Much appreciated.
0: Good morning, Paul. It's a real pleasure having you, and I thank you again uh, for the time taken to join us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. So, if we explore that word leader on its own, firstly, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole.
1: Okay. Well, I think in business, there are managers and there are leaders, and I think that Doing doing business as usual requires managers uh, in order to make doing business as usual as effective and efficient as possible. Um, but where you have change, you need leaders, and where you have um, change, particularly in times of challenge, then that becomes the ultimate leadership test. Mm. And I think that if you were looking at you know a typical example of that, it would be you know Winston Churchill, fantastic leader. Uh, But when it came to business during times of real challenge, but when it comes to business as usual, didn't stick around very long, wasn't kept around very long. I think there's entirely, you know, there's a line between leadership and management we need to understand.
0: That's very interesting um, because, um, Although leadership and management are certainly things that can be separated in that sense, there is also just a little bit of overlap between the two as well, isn't there? Particularly in the sense of almost people management, I suppose, in a sense, because that requires from leaders being good communicators, being able to be adaptable and flexible to match different personalities. So that's an element of management which does sort of tie into leadership as well, isn't it?
1: It does, yeah. But I think to answer your original question, I think the definition of a leader is that people follow them. And if you look behind you and there's nobody following you, you're not a leader. Um, You can be a manager of things and of processes. um, But yes, there is definitely in that Venn diagram, there is an overlap between leadership and management, I guess. The ultimate business executive is a truly efficient um, manager and a really effective leader.
0: And you mentioned, of course, um, the fact that leaders essentially step up in times of difficulty. And I think it's fair to say that we're going through such times right now with the emergence of the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, no less. Um, how has it been for yourselves from a business point of view, adapting to the challenges that that's brought about? Because I can imagine some of them have been tremendous.
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, um, in our industry, you know, we're very sensitive to confidence. You know, marketing services um, are—it's a, a very easy line um, to cross out sometimes, particularly when you're servicing um, small and medium-sized businesses, when they panic and they want to cut all kinds of costs, then we could be right in the firing line for that. But I think that um, we started some time ago to focus less on turnover and more on becoming robust. What I was telling my team then was that we're trying to build a ship which is unthinkable, not the biggest ship we could build. So we were trying to build our business based on as much retained business as possible, recurring revenues. And so when this, when this, when we sailed into this storm, um, that uh, nobody saw coming, really. It was um, it was one of those times where we looked at our ship and we went, actually, it had, we had made it a fairly robust ship. Um, you know, we have a lot of recurring revenues compared to a lot of our competitors who were working mainly on projects. And that's, um, that's helped us stay afloat. But we did have to deal with 50% pretty much instant reduction in turnover. Um, and obviously, the government solo scheme helped massively uh, with that. But it's been... It's been a real challenge, and we had to very quickly take stock of, you know, what we believed in the changing world was going to um, was going to be different, and how we could surf those changes to find a better place. Really, mm.
0: so despite the pandemic bringing a lot of challenges and a lot of tragedy with it, would you say that it's been quite a learning curve for yourselves in a business sense?
1: Weirdly, it's been incredibly stimulating. Um, so I think that yes, I mean, we, if you thrive on change. Um, then this is this is strangely exciting. I hesitate to, to use words like that because it's not strangely exciting if you've built a business that's gone under, or if you've lost people you love. And you know, in those circumstances, the last person, the last thing you want to hear is somebody telling you how exciting the whole um, situation is. But from a leadership perspective, it is incredibly stimulating. You know, we're seeing fundamental changes in in the way that we can do business now. I think we've all know, always known, for example, that we should be using video conferencing more. We've always known that we should do that. Now, we are doing that. And the knock-on effects of that, for example, um, give us new opportunities. So previously, where we may have considered ourselves a regional business, where we were operating very much, when we drew up our customer profile, we said, you know, our customer's ideally would be within 90 minutes of the office uh, because we know that, you know, we have a lot of meetings with our clients and uh, they enjoy coming to the office and we enjoy shaking their hands and and that's how we do business. Well, not anymore. And we've discovered that, you know, we don't need to be doing that to win new customers and to maintain our existing customers. So we very quickly went, said to ourselves, well, you know, under these circumstances, we've got an opportunity to change our business completely. So if we were no longer to be a regional business because we've accepted we accepted that we no longer have those restrictions that we had placed upon ourselves. Like many businesses, we had placed those restrictions on ourselves. The technology to do what we do today with Zoom meetings and everything else has existed for a long, long time. But um, today it's now acceptable. All of a sudden, it means that we can sell to the rest of the country. It means that we can sell to the rest of the English-speaking world. And if we gear up for it, we can sell We can sell remotely around the world and in different languages. So we can now start to think about what happens if we recruit people in different countries and then we can follow the sun and have, um, do business 24-7 around the world. So, you know, suddenly thinking about how you have to evolve your business to do those things, life becomes really exciting.
0: And of course, um, with all of that in mind, um, we are ultimately social creatures as human beings as well. And so that sort of human interaction may be something that we took for granted pre-pandemic. Do you think that therefore, considering this review of our working practices, that there is still a place for the office environment? Or do you envision that lapsing completely?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. I've been on a lot of panels in our industry, in the digital set, where we've been discussing exactly that. Um, I've already given notice to my landlords. So I gave notice to my landlords um, just a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, we set, we definitely won't be needing our three and a half thousand square feet offices anymore, uh, which is, you know, a reasonable size for a company that employs um, 27 people. Um, we just don't need it. Uh, we're, the way we'll be working in the future means that actually we know we no longer actually need an office at all. We want one. Um, but it won't be as big. I asked all of my team um, what they thought about working at home versus how important was it to have an office because an office is part of your culture, it's part of your brand, and that buzz of being in the office is something both my team and my customers do enjoy. Um, They all said it it was important to have an office. Nobody wanted to work from home all the time. And so, you know, if you're going to have an office as part of your culture and as part of your brand, it's important that you you can... um, that you provide a great one. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a smaller office, and we're going to be buying one rather than um, uh, traditionally we've rented one, which is also a step forward. And so what we'll be doing is we'll be saying to you, look, if you want to work on average two days a week at the office, we can organize that so that we need a smaller space, um, and it can be a really cool smaller space. Um, But also, there is even the opportunity that we could buy an office and share it with another company that wanted to do the same thing. And so I'm actually talking to other digital businesses about: Do you fancy an office two days a week? That might work.
0: That's incredibly um interesting um as well uh, because um it is going to be interesting to understand just exactly what happens with that as we move into the uh, the new normal more decisively over the uh, the coming weeks and months. Um, I want to touch on another thing as well that the uh, the COVID nineteen um pandemic has really thrust into the uh, the forefront of the, the the national discussion and that's the importance of sort of mental health and well-being within the uh, the workplace the fact that we're all working from a distance and people have had to keep the communication channels open in a remote manner to make sure that everybody's okay um how important do you think that mental health is from a leadership perspective, both in terms of looking after your own and also that of your colleagues, especially considering that we are all distance at this point in time. Although I do concede the fact that things are slowly starting to return to some normality in some cases.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's enlightened self-interest at the end of the day, looking after your people in whatever respect is enlightened self-interest because, you know, we know that we operate, if you just thought about it from a business perspective, let we ignored the fact that being a decent human being and a decent employer means looking after your team and genuinely caring for them, which I think, you know, when we as entrepreneurs are often viewed as being cold and heartless and ruthless and things, it's just not true. Most people who run small and medium-sized businesses do care deeply for their team, and I definitely firmly put myself in that camp. I'd go as far as to say I love the people that work for me and so yes looking after their their well-being in all respects is enlightened self-interest but it's also something that we want to do you know this is a It feels like a family, my business. In fact, we call ourselves the intergages, the intergage family. And so looking after them, they rarely get a week without me um, hastening them to make sure that they're exercising, that they're getting up and walking around and not just sitting at their desk, and that they're drinking enough water, and that they're feeling communicated with, checking in with them to feel that they're communicated with. What you can't do as a leader is leave an information void, because what will happen is if you leave leave any kind of information void, people will start filling it themselves. And so also communicating really openly and really transparently about how you're thinking is really important. So, for example, since seven o'clock this morning, I've been writing a parable about a fishing captain and the challenges of um, sailing your fishing boat when Poseidon, the sea god, has reared out of the sea and explained that there is a fish plague and there aren't enough fish to go around. And um, and what does the fishing captain's choice look like? So, yeah, I want to provide them with lots of ways to understand the situation, um, both in form of cold hard business facts. So they get graphs and they get facts and they get statistics and they get the challenges and they get our policies for dealing with those challenges. And we tell them how we've broken those policies down into action. So there's no information void. And I think that's really, really key. And then they need to get personal contact as well. So my, my manager's make sure that they're very regular touch. So even those people that we been furloughed are always getting a call and we're checking in on them and everybody in the team is is getting a call from me as well as the managing director. And so I I make sure that I'm checking with each and every one of my team on a personal level just to ask how they are, ask them how they're working, how they're feeling um, and try and pick up on on any issues and challenges they might be having. But as I say, what you cannot do is leave an information void. Mm.
0: And looking into that sort of leadership method that you've deployed there, Paul, in just a little bit more detail. I'm interested to understand what you feel some of the big influences and inspirations have been behind that way of doing things that you've developed. Are there any individuals that you've taken inspiration from throughout your career or any experiences that have maybe had a real influence?
1: Um, I'm really lucky to have been um, part of the Dorset Chamber of Commerce and Industry. In the honour of being the last president for our current president, very excellent Liz Willingham, and um, and that that enabled me to mix with some of the best leaders in our county and in our business community, which is fantastic. So I've been spoilt in that respect. And working with the university on the subject of leadership, what I what I did is I took a camera crew out and I went round many of the leaders in Dorset and I asked them questions, you know, what does it mean to be a leader? Is it lonely being a leader? How do you deal with the pressures of being a leader? And I was privileged to um, to be able to interview some of the best leaders, including the chief executive of our own chamber in, in Gerling, but some of the, the more progressive leaders in our business community and get their feedback as well, and then share that with some of the, the next generation of leaders at Bournemouth University. So that was a privilege, and um, and I'm also privileged to know and some excellent leaders. Uh, recently, I've been doing some work with a chap called Paul Kincaid, who was actually a colonel in the army. He's ex- um, the elite British forces. You can read into that what you will. Um, but he is, and he's a man who served on the front line, and um, he's a, a, an army colonel uh, with a great deal of um, experience in terms of leading at the front line. So I've worked closely with Paul as well. And, you know, his insights and his ability to stay calm under pressure by delivering a certain kind of perspective has certainly been an influence for me.
0: Some fantastic examples there, of course. And having reflected on the past for a moment there, it only serves that we talk about the future as well, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Paul. So thinking about the Mm -hmm. next sort of 12 to 18 months as we move through the pandemic and into the new normal, as it were, what do you envision for yourself and for the business? And what do you really hope to achieve during that period?
1: Okay. So what we've decided is that we're going to, we've taken a bounce back loan. And I think that's really important. So I think that, you know, firstly, the government have helped us with furlough and the government have helped us with a bounce back loan. In terms of that loan um, are really advantageous. And it means that if you're any kind of entrepreneur, then it's just presenting you with an opportunity. And so what we're going to be doing is, is... we're going to be harnessing that, um, that funding and we're going to be saying, right, okay, in order to become a national and international player, we have to become more niche. And over since our history, when we started off building websites for anybody and everybody, we've slowly become more and more focused, first of all, into the business-to-business sector um, in particular, and then within business-to-business, then breaking that down into, breaking that market down into sectors and the segments of those, and, until we become ultra-focused, and so we become, we'll niche down, narrow our focus, and fish in a bigger pond, national pond and the international waters. Um, we will organize ourselves in a different way, no two ways about it, and we will invest our bounce-back loan and our own money in marketing our way out of our problem. Because if there's one thing that is true, is that one thing that we we believe and have to believe doing what we do is that now is the time to employ marketing to steer in a new course and to turn the engines on and go for it because you know, our, our alternative is to potentially and I, I keep using marine metaphors, um, I do live on the south coast and I can smell the sea from where I am so forgive me um, but you know what I don't want is somebody to find a floating ghost ship one day and say these were the intergages this is, they slowly starved to death because they didn't take action what we have to do is embark on a new course, a brave new world, fishing deeper and bigger seas for a very specific type of fish and uh, we are embarked on that swashbuckling adventure as of now.
0: Sounds like really exciting times adding to Gage for sure Paul and you know given how insightful it's been from my perspective, having you discuss some um, of these issues on the program with me today. I think it would be great to actually catch up in a few months' time and have you back on the air with us just to see how things are getting on in that respect, gauge how those hopes are being borne out, and maybe even assess just exactly what has changed in the time between as well in terms of the market environment and the economic um, shape of the country as well.
1: Absolutely. it be a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for having me. And if you were to invite me back, uh, the answer is yes, I'll be there for you. Not a problem.
0: It's been a real pleasure having you join us today, Paul. It's a shame we don't have more time today. Otherwise, we could discuss it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but it's been fantastic. And most importantly, until we do speak again, which I'm sure will be a certainty, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this one yet. Oh, indeed. Thank you very much, Scott. All the best. That was Paul Tanzi speaking, Managing Director at Intergage. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Geoff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Geoff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham, United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium, 54 long. Years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff, and that is coming up next.
2: Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today.
3: Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh,
2: and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it, and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times.
3: Simply a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, of football. And uh, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over 15 years. I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He worked with so you're very fortunate i think you, you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in ron greenwood and of course uh, a great manager in South Ramsey. so to come across people like that of that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career of course and, and then your life and that's that's quite purely the case
2: absolutely and in those early days um at West Ham uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there it's also important to have uh uh confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it peter's
3: i think probably well i was very fortunate to play with the talent of the players i did again mm-hmm. again extremely fortunate to play with the you know, the captain Maybe overly strict, but the times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out. He didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody. they were people that else didn't think wanted to be part of a group um, so that, that's, that's for me in terms of my personal view I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, any, only a few games before I was, I was playing and I played with Jimmy Gris in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final and it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark
1: mm.
3: I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into the team because of a, a nasty gash just shined, um on Jimmy Glees' leg.
2: And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that
3: and I'd be involved in the squad initially, uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back at Al, mm. Al. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Al Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a a bunch of very hard nosed professional, uh, top quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, And I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our our group as hard nosed professionals. Uh, We had some great players, but overall, they were great, hard nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years.
2: And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else.
3: Well, I I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week. Over the next uh, two or three months, and uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's—I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, One, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. But the 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 other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch?
2: uh, well, you want me I I can tell you true. if you want.
3: you want. You got time? I can tell I go, you. if You want
2: Jeff? Go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in,
3: in the Channel Islands, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of mm-hmm. honour. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a somebody at the back who
2: Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with things like I found it amusing. I just found it amusing.
3: In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well, so it, uh, um, it did make it again, if, you could,
2: if you could put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but th- th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when... You, you don't have to, but I will. Uh, um,
3: well, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you—you you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches—people must realise that uh, that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field.